Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome back to the Neurodiverging Podcast. My name is Danielle Sullivan, and I am your host. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we're doing something a little different. I'm a little excited. We're going to be commenting on some news that has come out recently regarding autism broadly. Um, I've received a couple of emails from listeners and uh, clients who have seen some stuff in the news regarding autism, especially in the U.S. recently, and have some questions about it. So we're going to look at these news articles today, and I'm going to tell you what I think anyway. And hopefully some of you will, you know, write back or voice note back and let me know what you think, and we can have a conversation about this. Before I dive into this, I do just want to say thank you so much to my patrons over at patreon.com slash neurodiverging. These folks pitch in a couple of bucks a month to make this podcast go and to make it possible for me to do this and also to support our sliding scale coaching clients, which is just so, so appreciated. I know I say it literally every week, but I've got to say it again because you guys make the world turn for us. So thank you so much. If you are interested in throwing in a couple of bucks in the pot and getting ad-free podcasts and lots of other perks, please go check out patreon.com slash neurodiverging. I also just want to briefly say that we always have show notes, transcripts, and lots of other information up at our website at neurodiverging.com. You can also find information on our coaching services there. If you are somebody who is in need of life coaching, neurodiversity coaching, parent coaching, we work with executive functioning skills. Um, We work with all sorts of things. And we also have some courses now as well. So please go check out neurodiverging.com if you haven't been there recently. All right, so let's dive into some of this autism news, shall we? So the first article I have was sent in by Lindsay, and I actually saw this like everywhere when it came out. The one I'm looking at, I'll put a link in the show notes, is from psychiatrist.com. It's called Maternal Aspartame Use May Triple Autism Risk in Boys. This one was published on October 3rd, 2023. What the article is discussing is a study that came out that showed a quote unquote, threefold increase in autism risk for boys whose mothers consumed the sugar substitute aspartame daily during pregnancy or breastfeeding, end quote. Now, um, a couple of things um, came came up for me during reading this. And I just do just want to say, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm a coach, I work with autistic people. But I do also just want to recognize that when we're trying to determine, quote unquote, the causes of autism, which we know to be a really complex thing to be looking for, um, autism, just to kind of give you a background 
uh, is known to have a lot of genetic contributors and also environmental contributors. Um, and, you know, I'm clearly firmly based in the neurodiversity movement. I think that there are a lot of different brains and a lot of different ways of being a person. And I think all of those ways of being a person are valuable and valid and um, should be supported. So I'm I'm not somebody who's kind of on the boat with finding the quote unquote cause of autism so we can cure autism. I don't think that's a reasonable thing to want. And I think it's kind of a hugely problematic thing to want. However, I do understand uh, folks wanting to understand the cause of autism because for me and for many others, it is very apparent that what we were looking at when we were talking about autistic people is a group of people who are widely diverse, right? And I don't just mean diverse in behavior, but also diverse genetically. People who have all sorts of needs, who have all sorts of comorbidities and other challenges that they're dealing with. And I think that that points to the idea that we're probably dealing with quite a couple of autisms, right? That there's not one autism. What we're looking at when we look at autism and people with autism is people who experience a certain um, set of behaviors, right? That's how autism is diagnosed in the US. We're looking for a set of four-ish behaviors that this person um, emphasizes or experiences and and uh, engages in, and we are diagnosing based on an individual's behaviors from an outside perspective. Now we know, especially over the last ten years, that human behavior is not as straightforward <laughs> as uh, many folks would maybe like us to believe. That our histories our backgrounds, our experiences play hugely, our feelings, our our medical needs certainly play hugely into our behaviors, right? And as we look at autism more and more and more closely, we recognize that there are lots of contributors to autism, right? And that I frankly don't believe there is a cause, you know, a single singular cause of autism. But if there were, there would have to be like 10 causes, like there are so many different kinds of folks who have autism, right? And we're starting to see a movement in in the research to move into subtypes of autism, right? To start to talk about um, how how autisms are different across these huge spectrums. Um, but we're not there with the research yet. We're not there with the research yet. So I just want to preface this whole thing by saying that's what I'm looking at. When I'm looking at um, a study that purports to say we're seeing an increase in autism because of this one factor like aspartame ingestion in the moms, um, I, I have to be a little suspicious of that. Not to say that it's always going to be a false, but that anybody who's trying to reduce a very complex set of factors of what creates an autistic nervous system down to one thing like aspartame ingestion, I'm always going to be a little bit like, eh, I think that's the whole, that's the whole story there. So anyway, I approached this article with a little bit of suspicion. <laughs> um, not that I don't believe aspartame could be causing health problems. I very much believe aspartame could be causing health problems. I think we've seen a lot of evidence that artificial sweeteners um, cause significant health problems in lots of different kinds of people. But is it causing autism? Well, let's look at this. The article says that aspartame has been widely used since the 1980s as an alternative to white sugar. So we only have been using it for about 40 years, which is not that long in the history of, you know, consuming a, a a product. Now, the study itself involves parents of only 235 children with autism, as well as 121 children serving as a control without autism. So this is not a tiny study, but it's not huge, right? And it is a self-administered questionnaire. So they're giving these parents a questionnaire and they're saying, can you tell us about your lifestyle, your dietary habits, and any environmental exposures that you think your kiddos have experienced? 
Now, what the research has purported to find is that kids with early onset stable symptoms of autism, like behavioral or communication challenges, were more likely to have had mothers who drank a lot of food with aspartame in it, okay? This was also more likely to be observed in boys. Boys were three times more likely to receive an autism diagnosis if their mothers consumed at least one diet soda daily or the equivalent amount of aspartame during pregnancy or while breastfeeding. They did not uncover a statistically significant association with girls. So now when you read this one article from the psychiatrist um, in, in isolation, it really sounds like, whoa, this study showed that there's this huge correlation between aspartame ingestion in the parent and autism risk of the child. Now, if you Google search this study a little more, and if you look at the actual study, you get a little bit of a bigger picture. So when I looked into it, what I found is that a lot of people are very upset about this study for a couple of reasons. So first of all, it's one study of 200 kids, right? Can you say, can you make this huge claim that aspartame is the culprit when you're only looking at a small group of kids and you're only looking at self-reported data, right? Which is notoriously faulty because humans, even when we're doing our best to report accurately, our, our memories are not great. Humans are going to slant the data, right? So how can we make a huge claim um, based on this one study of just a couple hundred kids that is self-reported data? A lot of people are saying we need future large-scale studies with better um, recognition of, of kind of human factors. We need to be looking objectively at measurements of maternal diets and paternal risk factors um, and really doing a lot more before we can say, hey, it's the aspartame. I found a quote from a Dr. Rachel Mosley, who's the principal academic in psychology at Burnmouth University in the UK, who is quoted here as saying she was not um, involved with the study, but in reviewing it said, it would be highly premature and irresponsible to suggest a relationship between aspartame and autism based on this study. As every scientist knows, correlation between two things does not mean that one causes the other. Another person who was not related to the study, Dr. Deirdre Tobias, a nutritionist at Harvard University who is not involved in the research, said that it was shocking that the authors would feel confident enough in this design to draw these conclusions and that the study was, quote, extremely flawed because the data was collected retrospectively and based on the mother's memory of how much aspartame they consumed. She also pointed out that the sample size of the study was recruited from a panel of parents with an autistic child. So that means that these pregnant people had already parented an autistic child when they were recruited from the study. So of course, there is a genetic component to autism, right? If you have an autistic sibling, you are more likely for the next babies in your family to be autistic, right? So if they recruited from a group of people who were already predisposed to have autism run in their family, of course, there's going to be a higher risk or a higher likelihood of them having another autistic child on the way while they're pregnant. And there's really no way, once you find that out, to separate how the likelihood of having autism already in the family, like how aspartame could have affected that one way or the other. Like they were already kind of biased towards having um, autistic kids. So I think we can safely say that this study doesn't really add too much right now to our conversation around some of the uh, influencers of whether a child is going to be diagnosed autistic or not. I would agree with those much higher educated folks who are saying the study is is really flawed. Um, it recruited from a group of people who are already predisposed toward autism. So of course, you're going to see a higher level of autism in the kiddos um, who, were, who were birthed while the study was going on. The other thing I just want to point to, though, is that we have a huge history in the research of autism of 
blaming mothers and birth parents for autism, right? Which in itself is is a hard thing to say. Autism exists and it's part of the normal human range of being a person. And so we shouldn't really be blaming anybody for having autism anyway. Back when autism was first being kind of understood as a collection of traits and diagnosed, um, it was strongly believed that autism was caused by mother's behavior. We have the the fridge mother, right? The cold mother who doesn't give her child enough love and that's going to cause autism. A lot of folks out there who believe this very pernicious myth that's been disproved over and over and over again, that a mother's behavior can cause autism in her child. Um, we also have mothers being kind of constantly considered as to what our behavior was during our pregnancy that could have caused, you know, and I'm using cause in huge scare quotes here. So I hope that will be obvious to listeners who are not watching the video that, that this idea that, first of all, that mothers can even cause autism, right? Like, yes, there might be some behaviors out there that contribute to the quote unquote risk of autism or the likelihood of autism. Um, there are also probably genetic contributors, right? So in some ways, yes, you are a parent, your child is in you, your behaviors are going to affect that child. That's very obvious. But we have to be really careful when we're looking at research and we're, when we're conducting research as a community to shift away from this blame model of what the mother is doing is what's causing the autism in her child. Because I have to say that as a parent, as an autistic person, and also as a mother who has birthed two children, there is already so much pressure on parents to do what's right for their kids. And there's so little good research, um, especially certainly so little non-ableist research on how to support autistic youth that it's really hard as a parent to know how to support your autistic children in the best possible way for the best possible outcomes of their uh, wellness and mental health. There has to be a, a boundary between looking at a behavior and blaming the person who is engaging in that behavior for a, a very normal neurotype being the result of it. Always look at the cohort, uh, look at who's included in the study, look how many there are, where did they get their cohort from? How are they collecting data, right? Is, is somebody coming into the household and kind of doing an, an analysis based on their observation, or are they having people who are pregnant and stressed and probably very tired <laughs> reflect on what they did that day and calling it, you know, a, a good objective data when it's clearly subjective, right? There are values to these kinds of studies that ask people for their own experience. Um, in some cases, it's really useful to use that kind of work. Um, but when we're trying to make a huge claim <laughs> about uh, something like aspartame, which is prevalent in our beverages, affecting our autism likelihood. There's so many things that affect autism likelihood and aspartame in that study was not isolated in any way. It's just really important to look for that kind of thing. Okay. So I hope that answers Lindsay's question and uh, is helpful. And uh, if you have ideas or questions about that, you can go um, on the website or I'll put a link below and leave us a voicemail um, and we can always do a follow-up. This Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Second study that I got sent a lot. So the link that I received, this was from Ben. And I received a, a link from healthnews.com, um, but I also found other articles about it. And the title of this article is Children Can Outgrow Their Autism Diagnosis, says new study. And this was written by Kimberly Drake. And it, the one I'm looking at was published on October 5th, 2023. Link is in the description below. So this article is about a study that was done that from uh, Boston Children's Hospital, and it claims that researchers found that a significant number of children diagnosed with autism as toddlers no longer met the criteria for autism when they reached school age. Okay. Um, so this study was published in JAMA Pediatrics, J-A-M-A. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Researchers at Boston Children's Hospital found that among toddlers diagnosed with autism spectrum, between 12 and 36 months, about 40% no longer met the diagnostic criteria of autism by age six. So somewhere between age one and age six, these kiddos who were diagnosed with autism are becoming what appears to be neurotypical. Now, this cohort was about 200 kids. And again, I, as I said, they were diagnosed between the age of one and three. And then the researchers followed them until they reached about five to seven years of age and then used the same um, criteria from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th edition, which is kind of the standard in the United States at the time of the recording right now, um, to determine whether they still met the diagnostic criteria for autism. Okay. Now, the reason that this kind this news kind of blew up is because there's this idea, right, that um, autism once diagnosed is persistent, that we're going to have it lifelong, right? And I think that most autistic people, um, from my experience anyway, understand our autism to be innate, something we're born with, something we'll have when we die. It's part of our nervous system. It is who we are, right? Now, this study, the reason I think people are, are having feelings about it is because it's, it's claiming that autism is something that you can kind of pop on and pop off and that with certain interventions, autism just disappears. I look, okay, I read this study, like the, the actual study, not just the news write-up of it. And I have a lot of concerns about the study. So first of all, these 200 kids that they recruited from the study, they recruited uh, 213 children, 201 of them received uh, autism-specific interventions, quote-unquote, like ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. Now, uh, we have not dug into ABA on this podcast before because it's such a hard topic and it's something that I'm looking to cover in more detail. But basically what I will say for right now is that if you are not aware, Applied Behavioral Analysis or ABA is a type of therapy, quote-unquote, that basically trains autistic kids out of being autistic. Um, it uses behavioralist interventions to anywhere from force to coerce children to reduce their stimming, to make different eye contact, to communicate different socially, and to basically behave in a more neurotypical manner, even though that's against their innate preference. Um, ABA has been around for several decades and uh, is touted in the United States, if you're listening from international, as being the best uh, intervention for autistic youth. Um, many parents, I would say most parents are recommended to enroll in ABA when their child is diagnosed. And I can also say that every adult who has gone through ABA that I have ever spoken to has talked about it as a deeply traumatic and disempowering experience. 
um, that these children are not being supported for who they are and given accommodations that would help them, but are rather being told that they have to be someone different. And the mental health outcomes for kids who have gone through ABA is, is not good. It's not good. So anyway, out of 213 uh, toddlers, excuse me, who were in the study, about 200 of them received some kind of autism-specific intervention like ABA. When you are training a child to not behave in the way that is um, intuitive for them, of course, when you give them an assessment uh, a couple of years later, um, they're not going to show up as quote unquote autistic anymore because even though they're, in my opinion, their nervous system, they're still an autistic neurotype. Their brain's still autistic. Their nervous system is still autistic. What you've done is, you know, whacked them with a newspaper until they stop stimming. That's not changing their neurotype, right? Changing the behavior for me doesn't change that innate identification as autistic. What you're doing is causing children to suppress behaviors that they're doing to meet their needs. Um, and that suppression of behaviors might make them look less autistic from the neurotypical outside perspective, but it's not really going to change who they are. They shouldn't need to change who they are, in my opinion. And um, I think you're just telling me that you have traumatized 200 kids enough that now they don't look autistic in front of you anymore. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is we know that kids starting really young learn to mask autistic behavior, right? Um, ABA might be explicit in um, punishing or or negatively reinforcing behaviors that neurotypical people don't want to see from autistic youth. Um, but we know that neurotypical society uh, is deeply ableist and just the society in and of itself is passively negatively reinforcing autism from when these kids are born, right? And I've talked about that before on this podcast that um, when you live in a neurotypical society, a society that's not built for who you are and doesn't support you, you internalize all this stuff as being you're not good enough, you're not trying hard enough. So I must mask who I am and try to look more neurotypical so that I will be accepted, so that I will be supported, so that I won't be ostracized from society. Now, I would say from my experience, both as a coach, but also as just a human who is autistic, you know, I wasn't diagnosed till I was 32 or 33, but I was masking from when I was probably five or six that I can remember. And I'm not going to say I wasn't masking before that. Um, the, the parent coaching I do allows me to see, you know, kids from very young sometimes and um, kids can mask really young. And I think we have research on this as well, especially, especially girl children um, often, not always, but often learn to mask very, very young. So when I look at this quote unquote study, what I see is you have, first of all, punished a bunch of kids enough that they don't want to look autistic anymore. And you have taught the ones uh, who are able to mask to mask by the time they're six. And so, of course, you know, if you're going to say 40 percent no longer meet the diagnostic criteria, you know, you've punished it out of them. And I think that's awful. I would like more people to be aware of what survivors of applied behavioral analysis say. I have talked to parents who are like, oh, you know, it's nice now, it's gentler now, um, it's really improved as a field. Um, survivor accounts, even, you know, 12-year-olds now do not tend to uphold that perspective. Most autistics that I've met may have Will, will tell me that when they were kids, they thought it was helpful because it helped them fit in. But then as they became adults, they realized that they still weren't fitting in and now they don't know how to be autistic or neurotypical. 
um, it is suppressing a reality of someone's existence. I think it's a human rights violation and I don't support it. And I think it's really, really sad that some organizations are touting this as results as as positive that like we have punished kids enough that they're they don't look autistic anymore that's awful and uh i encourage people to learn more about aba to talk to people have been through it autistic people have been through it and really be curious if you believe that autism is a neurotype that it is innate that it is part of a human then how can we be okay with devaluing the humans who are autistic if every human life is valuable and if every human has worth, then how are we going to say we all need to act the same way? We all need to behave neurotypically. That's not demonstrating human worth to me. Okay, and then... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And the last study I want to talk about comes from Georgia. Um, this is called One in Four Teens with Autism May Be Undiagnosed. So this was written by Sarah D. Collins at Health Day. I will put a link below. It was published on October 6th, 2023. And uh, this article is about a study out of New Jersey from Rutgers, which uh, does a lot of research on autism. They have a whole, a whole uh, cluster of, of researchers there. And um, in this study... The team reviewed school and health records of close to 4,900 16-year-olds living in four northern New Jersey counties in 2014. Um, I think this was actually including the county where I grew up, which is kind of fun for me. And the initial review found uh, 1,365 cases that they wanted to look at more closely. Out of those 1,365 cases, a diagnosis of autism spectrum was confirmed in 560, according to the study. And from those 560 384 had been diagnosed autistic at age eight, and 176 met the diagnostic criteria for autism at 16. To put another way, the study says one in 55 kids in the four New Jersey counties had autism, but one quarter were undiagnosed until the study took place. Okay. So what is that is saying to us is that despite this idea from the last article that we can like intervention autism away, um, we still have a prevalent issue of underdiagnosis of autism. Now, I tried to look and see if this was a case of uh, kids from underprivileged areas uh, who maybe didn't have access to, to assessment services um, or uh, kids of color. We know that uh, Hispanic and Black youth in the United States are often way underdiagnosed with autism. 
The study authors said that one in 55 boys and one in 172 girls in the cohort were identified with autism, and it was found to be twice as common in teens from higher income households compared to low income ones. And autism was also more prevalent in white teens compared to black teens and Hispanic teens. Uh, there weren't enough Asian teens in the cohort for them to compare the rates. Um, I don't, this is totally conjecture, right? So I'm not saying this is true, but it was really interesting to me to see that if autism was twice as common in teens from higher income households, households, but those kids were not being identified. Um, it does seem likely to me that possibly one explanation for that could be that the higher income households are able to afford more supports. And so even though their kids haven't been diagnosed officially on an autism assessment, that maybe they're able to, you know, advocate better in the school system. Maybe they're going to better schools where their IEPs are more likely to be followed. Maybe there's more classroom support. Maybe they can get tutors. Maybe they can adjust their household um, to support their, their autistic kids. Um, if they're higher income compared to lower income kids. The other thing I found more interesting was that in this study, autism was more prevalent in white teens compared to black teens and Hispanic teens. Now, this might still be um, evidence of, of kind of a race issue. We know that clinicians tend to be biased. If they're white clinicians, they tend to be biased against black teens and Hispanic teens. That, that bias can be subconscious, certainly, but it exists. And so we do know that white clinicians are less likely to diagnose black teens and Hispanic teens with autism. Um, I don't know if these clinicians, you know, in the study were white. And I, this, again, this is conjecture. It may be that there are black teens and Hispanic teens that were in this cohort that were not diagnosed that should have been. That could account for it being more prevalent in white teens. It's, it, that's kind of unclear to me, um, but it was very interesting to look at that number. So what do I think about this study that one in four teens with autism might be underdiagnosed or undiagnosed? I think that's really likely to be true. Um, everything that I know, again, not as a medical professional, but as a coach, as somebody who works with late diagnosed adults literally every day, and many of them have children, um, I think that until recently, people like me were not diagnosed, right? And so you have generations of, of people um, who maybe have a family history of autism, but that autism wasn't diagnosed. We've talked about this before that, you know, for many of us, once we are identified as autistic, we look back and we think about, you know, a, a grandfather who was a certain way or a great aunt who was a certain way. People who clearly had special interests who uh, were different socially, different communication wise, um, who would likely be diagnosed with autism today, but weren't at the time because maybe they didn't have an intellectual disability or maybe they were still able to produce in society. And so they were, you know, just thought of as the oddball, right? Or the, the weird eccentric person. Nowadays, a lot of those folks, not all of them, but a lot of them would be diagnosed with autism. And so I can speak from my family's history that uh, now that I know I'm diagnosed, I can see strains of it going back pretty far. Um, so when I see a study like this that's saying, you know, it's still underdiagnosed, I really think that there is a likelihood that many families have a history of autism and are just not aware of it. Because if it's in your family, you just kind of get on with it. You just assume it's normal, like all families are like this. And until you interact with the world and you interact with other people, you don't always realize that your family is the odd one out, right? Or your family is doing things differently. So I am not surprised to see research indicating that autism is undiagnosed, even among white boys in New Jersey. I think, you know, we know it's underdiagnosed in other populations, in women, in girls, in queer people, in trans people, in uh, Black and Hispanic people, especially boys. Um, I would not be at all surprised to know it's also underdiagnosed in, in teenage white boys. 
So that's my comment on this study. You can see the link below. I hope this little bit of a different episode was helpful for you or interesting to you. If you liked it, let me know. We'll do more. Um, if you have comments on any of the studies that I talked about, especially if your perspective is different or if you have a different um, like academic background than I do, I would really love to hear them. You can email us at contact at neurodiverging.com or click below to leave us a voicemail. If you do leave a voicemail, we may use portions of it in an upcoming podcast, though we will strip away uh, any privacy concerning information from that if we do broadcast it, but just so you know. Um, if you did like this episode, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash neurodiverging. And thank you again so much to the patrons who make this possible. All the links to the news articles and everything else are in the show notes at neurodiverging.com. I look forward to talking to you again soon. And please remember that we are all in this together. Try saying aspartame ingestion in the gestating parent. This article seemed to really show a correlation between aspartame ingesting, aspartame, aspartame ingestment in the gestating parent. I've forgotten what I was saying. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.